This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hi there, I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. On this show, we are marking Baby Loss Awareness Week. We were speaking to two experts explaining exactly what loss can mean and the forms it can take, and two brave dads sharing their stories. And in conversation with David Golding, sobriety coach, about gaming addiction as a former gambling addict himself, he had some insights on when a good habit can turn into a bad habit. Chatting to Moorfields on International World Sight Day, finding out how the higher education sector is supporting students of determination and boosting your teen's confidence with coach Jasmine Navarro. Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. So something of a trigger warning, um, but truly a topic that needs to be discussed more, which is why we're really honoured to be joined by not one but two experts this afternoon. And after half past, going to be joined by Dean Munro, um, a father who sadly lost his little boy, Monty, at just 10 weeks old, talking about his legacy and what they went through, something no parent should go through. And joining us to explain what's happening in the UAE and, in fact, right now to mark Baby Loss Awareness Week. Delighted to be joined by Cassie Destino. She started IVF Support UA back in 2016. She'd been through a number of IVF cycles as a new expat in Abu Dhabi and now has a support group of over 3,000 members. Um, she did have a heartbreaking miscarriage at 12 weeks, but welcomed twins back in 2015. And uh, we've got Hazel Leonard here as well, who's also known as the Prepared Pineapple, a name that I absolutely love. They are their moderating, guiding sessions, virtual sessions online today and tomorrow with a number of people across the um, Love Through Loss community here in the UAE. So free virtual sessions covering a whole range of issues followed by an in-person afternoon of remembrance on Saturday for you to join if you have been affected and this is an amazing way of bringing community together and giving anyone touched by pregnancy and baby loss a really safe and supportive space to share their experience and really feel like they're not alone and both I do just want to thank you first of all for your time I know the next couple of days are really intense really valuable and you are I've already been in a number of sessions this morning helping I was going to say mums, but it's not just mums, it's family. So thank you. I really do appreciate it. Um, Hazel, you do a lot of work as a midwife, as a fertility educator, and, you know, kind of really to aiming to educate and empower and prepare anyone who's trying to conceive. And I just wondered if you could kind of talk about some of the issues that are going to be touched on over these topics, because it's all the way through from, as you're saying, they're trying to conceive to sadly losing a baby after birth. Can you touch on some of the the discussion points. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think loss is something that impacts people at any stage. Um, you know, it, it's not defined as it must happen by a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, this morning we've done sessions on IVF and loss because they're quite intrinsically linked. We've looked at miscarriage. We've looked at ectopic pregnancy. Um, but we're also going, you know, these are quite early losses. We're also looking at stillbirth. We're looking at palliative care um, for uh, babies that are, are with us. Um, and we're looking at support as well. So family support, sibling support. Um, and it's raising awareness that we don't often talk about. People don't talk about baby loss. Um, and I think culturally and generationally, it's something that's often been shoved aside so Mm. we just say oh no no it doesn't matter just you know let's just move on Mm. um but it's grief and people's feelings are valid and they're important and we should be talking about these things 
And I think that's, you know, why, as I said, I'm really, really honoured that you're both able to, you know, talk with me today, but also dedicate your time to talking in the community. I, I wondered if you think people are actually aware of the number of experts spread, kind of spreading this awareness and support and sometimes emotional, but often very practical care. Who are some of the experts that you're working with over the next couple of days? We have a range of experts. We There is actually a very large dynamic group of support for people here in the UAE when they have had these experiences. It's people like Hazel and myself who have gone through something and come through the other side and now wish to support other people who are going through it. We have doulas, we have midwives, we have people who specialize in bereavement care. I don't think that people are quite aware of how much support there actually is here in our community. Because, as Hazel was saying, so many of these topics are taboo and we don't talk about them. And if we're not talking about them, then we aren't highlighting the support that's available. And something we hear a lot in our work when people do find their way to us is they'll say, oh, gosh, I wish I knew about you two years ago when I was going through this. And and we always say, we were here two years ago. We've been doing this work. So a big part of what this event this week is about is raising awareness that there is this support, that there are these people who are dedicated to supporting each other in our community, that we are here for you. I think you raise a really interesting point there. Like, I, you know, I, I wish you'd been there two years ago. But what many people do is exactly what you're saying, kind of diminishing their feelings and what they've been through. Like, oh, you know, so-and-so had it worse. Or, oh, I heard this terrible story which makes my early stage miscarriage, you know, seem completely nothing compared to what they went through. But by really understanding that every loss is a loss and it can mean different things to different people. And often if you don't grieve and, and acknowledge it in that time, it doesn't go away. Mm. It, you know, it, it, do you think it's ever too late to kind of acknowledge those feelings and, and deal with them? Absolutely not. It's, you know, there's always a benefit in looking at our trauma and working through it. One of the sessions, in fact, that I'm leading this afternoon is about pregnancy after loss. So how do we navigate this this time when we've gone through it already and had a loss? That that sort of naivete of your first pregnancy is gone forever once mm-hmm. you've had a loss. And what are coping mechanisms? And how can we get through something that should be so joyful but is now so tinged with anxiety and fear? And, you know, tomorrow we have a session on being child free, not by choice. What if you come to the end of your fertility journey without a baby? Mm-hmm. How do you define the rest of your life? Who are you going to be? That's a really interesting topic and one I'd love to explore with you, you know, in, in full at a, at a later time because it is something that, you know, people are starting to talk talk a lot more about. And, you know, even looking at my, you know, my Instagram reel algorithm, we're seeing more people sharing their IVF journeys, talking about exactly that, you know, failed failed IVFs rainbow babies that they never thought they were going to be able to have and I'm so pleased I mean we I know we kind of demonize social media quite a lot but I do feel like there is now a platform for people to feel comfortable sharing that but more importantly perhaps having these face-to-face conversations Hazel and I wondered if you feel like you've built something of a community in real life as well how are families supporting each other even outside of baby loss awareness week I think as well there is that community sense so 
Um, one of the talks we did this morning, um, there was a discussion about triplets and there was a discussion of, oh, I knew nothing about it. So I reached out to like Twins Plus Arabia, which focuses on um, supporting multiple pregnancies. And then from there, I met this person and then I met this person and I spoke mm -hmm. to other people that had triplets. And, and, and it kind of snowballs and you meet other people that are in... And, and Dubai is quite a small place um, and you often know somebody that knows somebody. Um, and once you start talking about it, very often someone will say, well, I had that experience. Why don't you see this person? Mm -hmm. um, so it is a very supportive community and nobody's ever turned away. Nobody's ever told, um, you know, you, you might not be a specialist in that area, but you can refer to the right person. Um, and mental health as well is also very important. And that's not always reflected on so we reflect on like we've got a session on memory making for example and how important that is um and you know taking pictures and doing hand and footprints and things like that but actually having counseling mm -hmm. having therapy having um support to a psychiatrist or psychologist um is also you know it's it's, it's multi-layered the support it's not just speaking to a friend it's protecting and looking after all areas of your health mm -hmm. Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Baby Loss Awareness Week starts today. Um, and right here in the UAE, some really valuable resources and conversations happening over between um, today and tomorrow online on lovethroughlosssupport.com. You can register for those workshops and discussions. Plus on Saturday as well, there's going to be an in-person afternoon of remembrance. Uh, this is for the Global Wave of Light um, at Al Barari. So please don't hesitate to get in touch if you want more information if you have been affected by baby loss. And when I say baby loss... We are talking all types, you know, an, an unsuccessful embryo transfer, an ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage at, at any stage is a loss. Um, so please don't, um, please don't be shy if you want to share your share your story or share any questions or indeed get the information for that website so you can join in any of the sessions. We've actually got two um, regional experts with us today. We've got Cassie Destino from IVF Support UAE and we've got midwife and fertility educator Hazel Leonard as well. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, I guess, the practical side. I know a lot of this is going to be covered tomorrow, um, Cassie, in terms of funeral, you know, repatriation. But on the on the emotional side of that stage as well, what services or support is available should you lose a baby, you know, late stage in pregnancy, you know, you have a, a stillborn um because this has changed an awful lot over the last couple of years. There's a lot more than I'd heard of and certainly a lot worse than was five years ago. There, <clears throat> pardon, there are several support networks here. There, uh, the Lighthouse Arabia runs a, a really excellent support group called Little Lifelines. Uh, we work with uh, mental health practitioners in uh, lots of different uh, clinics here in Dubai. And, you know, I think the, what we try to do is connect people to other people who've had this experience so that it isn't such an isolating experience that you have people who might be a little bit further down that road to show you what your life can look like in the future as you progress through your grieving process. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, mental health practitioners that we can connect people with. We have other families that are in our network that we can connect people with. We are here to be sort of a repository of resources for the people in the community who do experience this kind of loss. And when we say experts, I'm talking about people who 
are there at the end of a WhatsApp in the middle of the night and there who can bring a photographer to be there in that room with you, you know, should you lose your baby or as Hazel mentioned earlier, you know, taking handprints and footprints. And um, I think us even talking about this, people was like, I didn't know that was about, I wish I could have done that. And, you know, God forbid this does happen to know that there is emotional support, but also some on the practical side as well. Um, Hazel, I wanted to kind of get your take and, and maybe we know how many people are affected by baby loss, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening today will know somebody who's been affected in, in some way. But what about supporting friends during that time? And and I know you both obviously do a lot with IVF and, and trying, to con- trying to conceive, but how can people be a good friend to someone who's having a really tough time in this space? No, I think that's a really good question. Um, and there is actually um, a session on like family support and, and how you can support people around. I think that's tomorrow. Um, I think how you talk to people is very important Um, one thing that I always say is the words at least should never be used in any form of baby loss Um, you know there is no at least when someone's lost a baby and and what people try and do is they try and protect their friends they try and protect their relatives Um, and very often they think if we don't talk about it we don't address it it didn't happen Um, a a very very good friend of mine um, did have quite a late loss and she wanted to talk about her baby she wanted to share the pictures she took she wanted to talk about her and what happened um and we listened and and we asked questions about her experience and and how she was feeling and we checked in on her regularly um and she would say if it was too much and she didn't want to talk about it today and she would also also say um yeah that you know th- I need this, this happened I need it yeah mm-hmm. um and I think a lot of people feel like that so and if you don't know what to say, you don't, you don't have to say anything. You can say, I'm here for you and ask questions. Mm-hmm. And, and it's as simple as that. I think we also understand so much more about grief now. I think there Absolutely. was a time when, you know, if, if we lost a baby that we would say, all right, well, move on. We can, you know, you've had a baby, just have another one. And, you know, like Hazel was saying, we really try to avoid, at least you can get pregnant. At least you know that you, you know. And now we understand so much more that there is a long-term benefit to spending time with that baby and photographing and having a memento and having a memory. We know that that affects the long-term grieving process. And in the short term, it might feel impossibly painful, but we've come to understand more about how we process grief in the years to come for the rest of our lives. We're going to be speaking to Dean Monroe after half past, who has shared his story um, after losing baby Monty at at 10 weeks old and really creating an amazing legacy. And one of the topics you are um, discussing is dad's grief too. And Mm. it sounds like a bit of an an obvious one, but do you feel like dads have um, been excluded or excluded themselves from a conversation over the years? And now is the time to address this. Absolutely. I do think that a lot of it comes down on women. It is, you know, motherhood is this sort of holy thing Mm -hmm. that we, you know, but of course, fathers grieve too, of course that they do. And, you know, it's, it's such an important part of our grieving process to grieve together with our partners. And it's, it's vital. And it's, it's really great that he's part of it. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, lastly, Hazel, what is going to be happening on Saturday and how can people get involved if they if they would like to? So the Remembrance Service is exactly that. So it's a place for people to come together. Um, there'll be people in a very similar 
situation to what you have been in. Um, it's they'll, they'll have stars with babies' names on. So it's it's just kind of bringing people together and having that remembrance and in a really beautiful setting. And it's really calm and it's kind of, I think, 5, 5.30, apologies, I can't remember the exact time it starts. but um, And it's just having that couple of hours in the evening to light the candles, to remember your baby or remember your sister's baby or remember, you know, somebody that was close to you um, and connect with other people that have kind of been been where you are again thank you so much for your time today and not starting a conversation we know as we know this is ongoing here in the uae but really bringing it to our attention over the next couple of days um hazel and cassie thank you um and if anyone does want information on the sessions that are happening today and tomorrow and of course remembrance service on sunday as well on saturday rather it's love through loss com, and i'd be very happy to share the website you two have got more moderating conversations to have and I really do value your expertise and all of the empathy and love and care that you put into the world. You do an amazing, amazing job. Um, so thank you both. Really do appreciate thank it. You, thank Helen. you, Helen. If you do want that website to find out about the sessions or indeed Saturday afternoon, by all means, get in touch with me on 4001. Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. This week is a time for people to come together, remember their much-loved and much-missed babies and raise awareness for baby loss. Joining us now is Dean Monroe. He is a father of two living daughters and his son, Monty, who passed away at 10 weeks old of myotubular myopathy. It's a rare condition that causes severe muscle weakness and breathing difficulties, and it was six weeks and numerous tests before doctors figured out the problem. Monty tragically died in hospital four weeks later, never having the chance to to leave that hospital. Dean is also the author of a series of books in Monty's memory, and Dean joins us now. So lovely to have you with us. Um, Dean, you went through something no parent should go through, and I wondered, how are you and the family? Hi. um, Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Ellen. Um, Obviously, we've had the arrival of Baby number two, um, Delilah Pell, um, who who came into the world about six weeks ago now. But um, yeah, it's it's all a bit it's all a bit different. Um, like I don't know, it's it's, it's difficult to explain. Um, but yeah, we're we're good as a fact. Obviously, we're healing every day. We're we're healing um, with everything that happens. But there's there's so much in Delilah which reminds me of Monty, which is like. An amazing thing mm-hmm. to see every day. We were speaking to some of the team from um, Love Through Loss and they were talking about pregnancy after loss and just how scary that can be for a family, you know, having been through something as tragic as, as, as losing a baby to then have the hope and I think the courage really to, to try again is mm-hmm. incredible. Um, and I'm so delighted that you know Delilah has, has safely entered the world and home with you guys. But was that was it very difficult for you to make the decision it, then to put yourselves through it again potentially? It, well, I mean, it, it was something that we always wanted. I, I always knew that I, I grew up with a big family, um, two sisters and a brother, and, and Kirsty had two brothers her side, and it, it was just it, it always felt right. You know, Monty was he came into this one. The world wasn't ready for him you know it, it wasn't the time for him to be here and for us to get another beautiful healthy baby it, it's just been like the best thing I mean it, it was a very different experience it was nerve-wracking the whole way through the pregnancy even up until the day of the birth I mean it was it was it was I, I would always say it was scary I, I knew in my heart that nothing was going to um, 
happen. I knew that I was, I, the baby was going to be healthy. I knew there was nothing in this world which would put us through that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was a different experience to Tallulah and to Monty, but one that I'm just so grateful for. And Dean, you've become such an important and valuable voice in baby loss awareness. And it is the week this week. And one of the discussions that's being held over the next couple of days is it's called Dad Grieves Too, which does sound pretty obvious. But I do feel like we haven't heard from dads much. And it's not me a way of saying you must speak up. But I I hope that by you speaking up, dads who have been through loss feel like there is a space for them. Um, And I, I wondered what kind of what kind of feedback you've had from other dads or what kind of conversations you've had? Joe, I've helped. Uh, there's, there's been a few groups which um, we, we, I've spoken to people and, and, and other things. And I, I was thinking about this earlier that for me, there was no one I could have, there was nothing publicly available, you know, something that no one that I could ring up and talk to about this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you've got, um, I need to get the right word here because I'm, I'm not <laughs> psychiatrist or psychologist. Both type of people with yeah mental health experts, Maybe, yes, yeah. something like that so um you know you can always talk to people like that but in my opinion if they haven't been through the experience mm-hmm. no matter how you know educated in the world they are extremely clever people that they just i don't think would be able to get it so yeah for me it was it was a just something i had to take on and deal with obviously my family weren't here with me obviously they're all on the phone and my friends and everything so for me it was me and um kirsty and, you know, without the two of us, and, and we were very fortunate to have um, Tallulah as well at the time. And that was something that massively helped us. But like I've said before, like, if people need to talk. You know, mm-hmm. th- life doesn't teach us this this thing that happened to me. This, this isn't taught at school. You don't learn that, that um, your children are going to die. You, you know that, you know, your grandparents, and this is, you know, a natural thing to happen. But what happened to me isn't and as i say i I really want to let people know that there is light at the end of the tunnel um and that that you can talk to people about it and i think that is the key you're not just talking about it you are writing about it as i said you the author of a series of books i wondered how has writing the books helped you And, and obviously it's been a huge support um for other people as well but looking back how 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 do you think it's been part of your healing yeah, it's just been the best thing ever for me because I feel like I could live his life almost through stories that other people could read all over the world. Um, you know, there's things which are obviously events that will be happening that would have happened in his life. And, and you know, the next one that is coming out is called Monty's First Day at School. And that's actually, um, he's actually in there with another boy who was in NICU with him, who's, who's oh, wow. at home, healthy, um, beautiful little baby boy. He, he, he came out of there, but in the book, I actually make it about them two being best friends and things like that. So all the events that I'm writing, dreams that he might have had and, and just reliving his life so other people can read about him. Dean, do you ever dream about Monty? Does he ever kind of visit you in your dreams? I see him every day. And, and I, 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 I don't just say that, but I, I know he's here. Like Things will, will go past me in, in, at times and I'm, people might go, that's mad, Dean, that doesn't happen. I know for a fact that there's something around me the whole time I don't doubt it at all for a second and you're keeping his yeah. memory alive in so many ways and how do you talk to him about, I mean I know Nodalai is a little bit a little bit young but with but with your older daughter Talila how 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 do you kind of honor his memory at home um it's, it's it's a case of up in the sky you know whenever we go out whenever she sees the moon Tallulah will always go there's Monty 
Um, if she sees anything in the sky or, or if she has a balloon, she'll let the balloon go up to the sky. She goes, this is for Monty. Every day she sees the moon, she, she'll mention him. And she knows that he's up there looking down on her. Dean, thank you so much for joining okay. us today. I, I know this week must be especially hard, but I'm so I'm so honoured, really, that, that you've got that bravery and that vision to share what you've been going through. And, you know, I think you've created such a beautiful legacy for your boy and real purpose for you and, and you and your wife. And the books are fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Um, Thank you, Pat. And keep us posted on the next book. Wonderful to see Monty's adventures do. unfold. Take care of yourself. And Manny, who is a friend of the show, joining us now. Manny, thank you for being with us. And I think, you know, as I touched on Baby Loss Awareness Week, we often hear a lot of female voices and one of the discussion points is about dads grieving too. And I think it's so wonderful to hear dads explaining that you have such, I mean, you have to be the strong ones in all of this, presumably. Tell us a little bit about what you've been through. Yeah, so we... um in our first pregnancy, we, uh, EJ, as he was known, um, Emmanuel Jr., um, developed something that happens to one in 15,000 um, young babies, uh, amniotic band syndrome. And we didn't, um, at first we didn't know how to deal with it, so we had to go back to the UK for specialist um, review, and, and we eventually ended up losing EJ. Um, and it was exactly that, you know, we... we as men, we go through a situation where we think we have to be strong for our wives um, and so on and so forth. And you don't really know where to go to to, to grieve. I remember um, my mother-in-law actually saying to me, Manny, you've been so stoic through this whole situ- um, um, situation. And it ultimately led to me actually having a breakdown one night um, because I was getting ready for bed and I just felt like I'd, I could feel EJ. Um, and I broke down and, and ended up going for a walk that lasted for two hours. So as as um, the gentleman just explained, it's important for us to speak. It's important to have people and places where we can go and actually, you know, know that's okay. And since I told my story, a few of my friends have actually told me about also losing um, children and pregnancies and so on and so forth. You are a really big advocate for mental health and you you know, you know, have your mentality podcast as well. And I think of you being very kind of evolved, I guess, in terms of <laughs> talk, thinking and knowing about your emotions and being an amazing communicator. And what kind of breaks my heart is to think about the hundreds, thousands, millions of men out there who feel like they can't, I guess. And I wondered if you had any advice for them. Um it's okay to feel. I mean, I actually, funny enough, the, the, what, what led me to calling in was the simple fact that I actually shed a tear as I was listening to, to the gentleman speaking because it brought me back to the feelings that I had losing EJ. Um, and, yeah, I think it's okay to feel. It's okay to grieve. Um, it's okay to, you know, not be okay as such. But remember that at the end of the day, no man's an island. And there are, there are communities and there are spaces where you can go and start with start with speaking to your partner, um, you know, because they're also going through it and it's okay to grieve together. And then, like I said, there are spaces and places where you can go and, and speak to people um, and people will listen. Thank you so much for contacting us this afternoon. I think you're amazing. I really do. Um, and how, how do you honour EJ now, whether it's in, in small little practices or in, in bigger ways? Yeah, so we, we, we have, um, when EJ was buried, we had um, 
a pendant that we we sent with him. Um, so we have the other end of that pendant and that hangs in the bedroom. So we see that every day. Um, but like again, like like that, um, you know, um, the gentleman said we constantly reminded of him. Um, in fact, our current baby, who's six months old, Tiago, was named. Um, and we believe EJ chose the name because when we're going through the list of names, um, we had the bedside a lamp started flickering when we got to the name Tiago, and that was before we even knew we were having a boy. So we kept the this um, sex secret all the way through. But we got to the name Tiago, the bedside lamp started flickering, um, and then when we had the child, it was a baby boy, and we're like, so EJ knew. So there, there are lots of instances and occurrences where. Um, we are reminded that he and his spirit lives on and, and he's somewhere uh, around and with us and looking after us. Always part of the family, Manny. Thank you so, so Absolutely. much. All the very best to you, sir. And thank you for sharing your story. It's, I Honestly, I feel so honoured to have this job, this role sometimes, to be able to hear from you and share stories. Most importantly, share places where you can go and get help if you do need it. So please don't hesitate to get in touch if you do want to find out more about some of the resources right here in the UAE as we mark Baby Loss Awareness Week. Lovethroughlosssupport.com is where you can go to see a schedule of completely free talks across a whole range of topics regarding baby loss from ectopic pregnancies and failed IVFs through to memory boxes and the practical side. If you want that website, drop me a little message. Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Let's get ready for some scary numbers. The global gaming industry is expected to exceed $320 billion in about five years' time. And this growth, well, I mean, many factors, but driven by social and casual gaming and millions of people picking up their controllers to escape the boredom and isolation of COVID-19 lockdowns the world over. But for many, this has gone one step further than just a short escape. And gaming addiction has now been defined as a disease, a compulsive mental health disorder that can cause severe damage to someone's life. And it is common for video game addicts to spend up to 12 hours a day gaming, often well into the night, might suffer from sleep deprivation. And back in 2018, the World Health Organization officially included internet gaming disorder in the international classification of diseases. Is this ringing any alarm bells for you? Is it something you'd like to explore around your own behaviours or that of someone in your life? Get in touch now because David Golding is here. He is the founder of Sober Lifestyle Coaching, former alcoholic and gambling addict himself. He's now on a mission to help others on their road to recovery. Um, how are you, David? Lovely to have you with us. Oh, I'm superb. It's lovely to see you again, Helen. Thank you. Well, I've been a little bit inundated by messages on this, um, on my social media and on the text line as well. With lots of people going, is this normal? Is this normal? Is this mm. normal? So um, we are going to come to the text line soon. And, but I want to come back to that World Health Organization classification about it being a disease. And I wondered what light you could shed on addiction as a whole, being a disease because I think many people who perhaps haven't been exposed to or experienced themselves might think of it as being more of a choice. Wow yes that's a really good question. I think that if you end up with an addiction I think we lose the power of choice mm. and that's the point mm -hmm. which is that there's a moment where you're choosing to do something and engage in something and you know my children play on their iPads and uh, ultimately there's a moment where you can't stop and that's really, I think, the moment that things change, mm -hmm. which is that if you've tried to stop and you find that you can't, that's a real big red flag. And I think it's losing the power of choice, actually. There might be different vices or different substance but that would have addiction at the heart of them. And I 
I'm not an addiction expert, so I'm curious to get your take on this in terms of some things being stopped or reduced in in different ways. You know, look at alcohol, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with food addiction, you need to eat food every day. So the way you might treat those two addictions might be quite different. You, you yourself were, were a gambling addict and had numerous attempts to to stop before being able to, to finish completely. Where do you think gaming falls in, in terms of that being part of life? You know, you might get on your PC to do a bit of work and then next thing you know, someone sent a message saying, oh, do you want to hop on this this game? Mm. What what have you heard from clients in the past and, and even seen in studies? Okay, well, let's, let's take a step back. If you go and see a, a doctor or a clinician, they'll be using something called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm-hmm. And they'll be using that book. That book, it's an international standard that's used by most countries. It's used in the UAE. And DSM-5 came out in 2014. Um, and in DSM-4, things used to be called abuse and dependence, and they joined them together. So pretty much you can say that you've either got a substance use disorder or a non-substance use disorder. Okay. So alcohol and drugs and things like that are a substance use disorder. Non-substance use disorder, gambling and gaming addiction. Interestingly, though, even though the WHO have said that this is a disease, DSM hasn't recognised it yet. And in 2014, it wasn't included. Internet gaming disorder is not in the manual. And they said that we need to do more research. A lot has changed in that a time. A lot's changing very, very quickly. <laughs> a lot has changed. I think about the phone I had in 2014. It certainly wasn't as, you know as techie as the one I have now, Mm. we've been living through a global pandemic Mm -hmm. where we're looking at kind of demographics that might be more at risk of gaming addiction, definitely teens and young adults falling into that group. People that were having to be on their computers for education, Mm. for socialising, for just about everything. Mm. And the sheer amount of time that a device might be in your hand or you're spending time at a desk or in a gaming chair will have gone through the roof. How often is this book updated? Do we know? I don't know when they're going to come and do the next one. Oh, have a nosy. I'm sure they're working very hard on it y- right now. You've caught me out there. I, <laughs> I don't know. But eight years was the, was since the last one. Yeah. I think it's due for an update. I would say so. But, but I think your question was really good at the beginning, which was about, so for example, eating, you know, having an eating disorder. That's why it's incredibly difficult to stop that. Alcohol, you just stop, not just. You know, that, that makes it sound easy. But, it, but for what I say is it's 1% putting down the drink and the drugs mm-hmm. and 99% changing who you are. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if you have to eat, you've got to really be able to manage your attitude towards food. And similarly, you know, if you're at work and you need your telephone and your computer um, and it becomes a problem for you, you've got to find a really good way to manage that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is at the heart of what we're talking about here today. I think what's... I don't want to say it's because it, what can be difficult is you look at gaming and you think, well, it's a hobby, mm. you know, and I'm certainly not saying I'm absolutely not demonizing gaming in any way at all, because I think it's often a, a valuable piece of escapism. We know what can teach you about strategy and um, fine motor skills and, you know, all sorts of actually very positive things. But when it does tip over into, well... I mean, the, the stories internationally are horrendous. In South Korea, a couple was arrested for being so obsessed with video games that their infant daughter died of malnutrition. Oh, there was a story out of the States about a 17-year-old who shot both of his parents, killed his mother because they took away his Halo 3 video game. And his defense was that he was pushed to the brink of his addiction to video games after playing 18 hours. Mm. So I guess what we're kind of trying to drill down now is... When it affects your quality of life, when it affects your mental health, that's when it needs to be addressed.
Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking addiction this hour and video gaming. It's now the world's largest entertainment industry. It's bigger than music, bigger than Hollywood and Bollywood. And that means for game developers and publishers, it's also a very profitable place to be right now. And it's very much in their best interest to have you playing and spending as long as possible. David Golding is with us now. He is the founder of Sober Lifestyle Coaching. Here as a former gambling addict himself and reformed alcoholic, he helps people get on their own road to recovery. And um, We've had a number of messages, David. We are going to be going to the text line soon. But I wanted, if you don't mind, to kind of touch on something that might answer a lot of questions of people listening today and those who've messaged in already. What are the red flags to sure. be looking out for? Good question. So we're, we're talking about when does a good habit become a bad habit, an unhealthy habit? So you could look at things like the, the amount of time that they're spending. And if that begins to increase, and I'm sure we'll be asked about that later about, you know, what's a reasonable amount of time. So spending increasing amounts of time on social media or Xbox or, or games, things like that. Losing friendships, slipping grades, uh, conflicts with teachers and parents. You know, that's, that's where it's almost the focus is beginning to move away from normal life and normal relationships into this virtual world. This is what scares me about the metaverse, because what happens if your life on the metaverse is better than the one in real life? You're not going to want to have face-to-face conversations anymore. And, and I think that's already happening. I uh, so. um, you know, my children love um, uh, Roblox and they, they're online an awful lot. And us trying to manage that as parents, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have to do that. And it's a really, it's a really hard line to tread as parents because we know that technology is going to be a huge part of their lives, whether that's professionally or socially. We know that they're they're going to need to know how to code. We know that they're probably going to be doing jobs that don't exist now that are going to be in a tech space. We don't want to discourage them from learning these skills, but n- but not to the detriment of real life relationships, real life connections, self care, and sleep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, sleep's just such a critical one. Mm. So you know, one of the rules, if you like, that parents should look at is uh, you know we talk about having no no media in the bedroom. You know, so children reading stuff and being on blue light on their phone and their iPads before they go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I do that sometimes and it, it does affect my sleep. Oh, 100%. 100%. I've, had, I've started putting, this is the one smug thing you'll ever hear me saying. <laughs> Mine's now in the spare room. Um, no name on this message, David, saying, my husband's 44 and likes a war strategy game, plays it up for 10 hours a day. <gasps> he says it's escapism and likes the fact he can run rings around people in the game because he's good at strategy. I think it's just stupid if you need to look somewhere for that kind of self-respect. There are purchases which do bother me, but mainly the fact this is causing arguments. He's not willing to do family things at the weekend, for example, and won't admit that that's a problem. Okay, well, unfortunately, I might have to agree with the lady. I think if you're choosing to do something over your family and responsibilities, I mean, that's a red flag. I I did that a number of years ago with the gym. I got obsessed with going to the gym and I would get there at 6.30 in the morning and stay for three hours, seven days a week. And it meant that I was no longer there, helping the children get ready, helping my wife with the four children. So were you seeking out something or seeking to avoid something with that behaviour, do you think? I think that's my addictive behaviour, just throwing myself in. I mean, I'm 100% or zero. There's there's no middle ground. And it sounds like the gentleman here, you know, he, he said it was escapism. Well, that's a really great word to use. So what are you escaping from? I mean, that for me is the greatest indicator of I would love him to speak to somebody about why he's escaping. It's a great word, you know, betrayed. But if he's denying that there's a problem, how do you as a wife or a partner or a sibling or a parent try and broach that and get them 
the help that you... And this is the thing, it's the help that you think they need. Mm. You know, he doesn't think there is a problem. No, quite. When you, you chose the word, the correct word, denial, if he's in denial that there's any problem at all, um, that's where the young lady might need to protect herself and her family mm -hmm. from the fact that this, this gentleman might be in active addiction and he's denying the reality of what's really going on. It's affecting his wife and his family. And, and at that point, um, there's not much you can do. You, 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 can, have, you had family members and, you know, partners telling you over the years gosh, that, this, yes. that this, isn't, this is not sustainable, this is not what we want for our life. No, oh, completely. I mean, it starts off with, I think that you should stop doing this and then I want you to stop doing this. Then you must stop doing this. And then eventually after, what, four years, uh, we're going to get a divorce if you stop do don't stop doing this. And that didn't work. You know, and I got kicked out. And I still didn't stop until I was ready. Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are talking addiction this afternoon, specifically gaming addiction. And not all researchers actually agree that video gaming is, a, is harmful or addictive activity. Many people, and myself included, many parents believe that video games can expand imagination, give children opportunity to work collaboratively, sharpen cognitive skills. But when young people spend most of their time playing video games at the expense of schoolwork, physical exercise, family events, social activities, real connections... The benefits of gaming do feel less certain. Joining us in the studio to unpack this and answer your questions as well is the founder of Sober Lifestyle Coaching, David Golding. He's a former alcoholic and gambling addict himself who is now helping others on their own road to recovery. We are taking your questions and some really interesting um, clarifications being asked for, David, and, and mm -hmm. also some personal stories being shared too. But let's start with this one from Colette saying, does David think that some people just have a more addictive personality than others? And if so, why? Okay, good question. It's uh, There isn't a sort of diagnosis of an addictive personality. I think I recognise that I, I'm like that. So I think there's different factors that, that go into that that say that you might have a greater propensity. So there's various things like your genetics, there's a 50% greater increase in becoming an addict if, if there's your father or mother or somebody in your family. But we're talking about tiny, tiny margins, by mm -hmm. the way. But nevertheless, you, you can measure that. I think the environment in which you grew up, I think if you, you grew up where there was booze, lots and lots of booze and gambling and things like that. So I think it's also uh, the people that are surround you, the people that you keep, you know, the keep. Um, but the, probably the greatest are, are mental health problems. Mm -hmm. If you've suffered some trauma, or PTS or things like that. Mm -hmm. I think it, it means that you you probably have a greater propensity for that. But there's there's no rule. Of course, we're all human beings. Have you read or watched Johan Hari's work on addiction and connection? Because that's really interesting. Thinking about that mental health piece, you know, that unmet need. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think they were talking about trauma being at the root of all of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I'm working with clients, typically what happens? Let's imagine an alcoholic. You put the booze down. And then it begins to highlight things like anxiety and depression, which is great because then you can tackle those. Mm -hmm. Because for me, that's what I was masking throughout my life, mm -hmm. fear, anxiety. And, uh, you know, when you put that down, you can become a more rounded person and begin to tackle the things that used to really cause you trouble. There's a message here, no name on it, David, and it's absolutely fine to be anonymous, um, which I guess is asking a really key question at the crux of a lot of it, saying, does the duration of addiction have a negative impact on the speed or outcome of recovery? Is there a time where you say that this addict is a helpless case? Oh, gosh. don't like the phrase helpless case, to be perfectly honest. Um, nobody ought to be really thought of as a helpless case. But look, it, it does come down to the individual. I can't get somebody else sober 
you know, my wife couldn't get me sober. So it's a very personal journey. Mm-hmm. Um, the length of time now, I think once you've crossed the Rubicon, once you're an addict, that's it. You're not going to be an unaddict. You're not going to be an unalcoholic. And I think that this is about the habits, which is that uh, there's three words that that um, I that can describe me. I really wanted to know why I became an addict. And I would say I trained myself. For 40 years, I trained my brain chemistry, my dopamine, my habits. Mm-hmm. And I had this habit of running away and doing this this behavior and this is what i think the gaming thing is it comes back to again about those brain chemicals you know those hits of dopamine that stimulus and reward which makes it so hard to put that console down to walk away from the pc especially when you throw in a bit of fomo you know if that's yes. where, if that's where all your friends are socializing and when you do see them in real life they're talking about you know what happened last night or in the night then it must be very hard for families and especially young people to put those boundaries in place. Um, Leonard's been in touch. I'm curious to get your take on this thing. I doubt the pandemic helped, but for what it's worth, pretty much every young lad I've ever known has experienced a gaming addiction for a couple of years between 12 and 15. Then they discover girls and other stuff. Our son, now 18, was obsessed. And of course, it's the technology they use to chat to friends, which makes it even more difficult to turn off. He got bored with it around the age of 16 and is now at Oxford. Leonard, Good to hear. You know, your 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 kids love a bit of gaming. Was you've got a Fortnite fan, you've got a Roblox fan. <laughs> what kind of boundaries and guidelines do you put in place? You know, bearing in mind we want this to be a good habit, not a bad habit. Yeah, we we've put in some boundaries. Uh, sometimes we're pretty rubbish as parents. Same. They're, they're weak. They're weak boundaries. <laughs> sometimes we're more permissive no, when well, we're tired. Or, you, know. you know, the truth is is that we we at home we call it the, the rectangular babysitter. <laughs> You know, because we want an hour off. Yeah, you know, I and I'll say that. Look, get on your iPad and, and leave us alone for a bit, because there's four young children pestering. Um, I think it's it's trying as parents to manage their involvement. You know, unmanaged, they will just do. They're children. They will do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. When in fact, as parents, we we want them to do what we need them to do. Mm-hmm. So trying to manage the amount of time. Other things, you know, not having it at the meal times. You know, not having them if you go to a restaurant when they're older. And they've not learned the skill. Oh, David, I saw something so sad the other day. And I've, again, this sounds really judgy. And actually, I don't care. I, I did judge it. I went to the Green Planet, which mm. is like an indoor biodome, this amazing, in fact, when you take your kids there, indoor jungle where they've got sloths and ring-tailed mm. lemurs and parrots and bunnies and things. And I was there with my husband um, and my five-year-old. And there was a boy walking around, going down the slope of this indoor jungle, holding, playing a game on his iPad with his headphones on. I'm like, look around you. There's a no. sloth there. There's a sloth. And, and, and while I was angry, I was overall just a bit sad. Mm, no, it is sad. I mean, it's true that, that my son, he's, he's great at football. Um, he's 10, really good at football. But you know when his friends are playing FIFA? He wants to play FIFA. And I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, isn't it sad that it's sunny and he could be outside playing football for three or four hours and, and he's on his iPad. And I think that's a little bit sad. So, you know, this is when children begin to withdraw. Mm-hmm. But but I think that there's a really good book by Malcolm Gladwell, just briefly, called Outliers. That's great. And he talks about 10,000 hours uh, to train yourself to be an expert in something. And that's, again, about the dopamine, the brain chemistry, the habits. Well, look, if you've got a child who spends five and a half hours a day for five years, there's your 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. So they start at five and by 10 and a half, there you go. I also think it's probably not helped by the fact that many of the top earning influencers and YouTubers are gaming based. Mm. Like that, then there is, there's mega money out there. There really is. Now, I want to talk just very briefly about what treatment can look like. Are there any therapies that are particularly useful at breaking these patterns? 
I, I think it begins at home. I mean, I think it really begins with the fact that this is a parental issue. Yeah. Let's be honest, that, that if, if parents are moving away, and, I, and by the way, I'm not pointing fingers here. No, of course I, not. But I, if it happens under our roofs as family, then that's, it's a family issue. You know, you've, you've got to be able to do that. And I think that if you can tackle that and get the, you know, the regime in place mm-hmm. when children are younger, so that they expect and understand that there's iPad time and then there's downtime and there's mm-hmm. playing outside time. And I think that when teens become problematic and they get bigger, and they can shout, and they can be violent, and and also some parents like me. I don't like confrontation, and you know my eleven-year-old daughter, she loves her iPad. Yet sometimes we've got to say you're going to have to put it down, and oh, and it all kicks off, and you know. So I think it begins at home. Mm-hmm. It really uh, does. But for anyone who's older and listening now, and perhaps is worried about a partner or worried about their own behaviours, what's the best way of reaching out to you? And again, it's not to do with gaming. You've had an awful big spike in gambling addiction issues coming to you uh, to your door recently, David. Yeah. Um, what's the best way of reaching you? My, my website's the best one, sober.ae, S-O-B-E-R. Thank you so much, David Golding. It's always an absolute pleasure. And to everyone listening today who is affected by this, please make sure you're going to reputable sources uh, for information and indeed support. And if there's any topics that you feel like you'd like us to shine a light on to connect you with any experts, get in touch. This is very much your platform, 4001. You can use that ARN Play app as well. And if you do want David's details, um, Instagram, uh, his website, I'm sure we could share his phone number as well. Drop me a little line on 4001. Your eye health on eye with Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. I care for you and your children. Moorfields, driven by your vision. It is International World Sight Day. I am rather appropriately wearing my reading glasses. Dr. Salman Wacker is with us from Moorfield, helping us out, shedding some light, and taking any questions uh, that you might have on your eyes today. Happy World Sight Day, Doctor. How are you? Hi, Helen. Thank you so much for having me back again. Uh, happy World Sight Day to you as well. <laughs> Are there balloons up? Do you exchange cards? What, what's happening there at Moorfield today? <laughs> well, we're busy as, as usual. Um, and, and what makes us really happy is to see people coming in and having their eyes examined and checked and making sure everything's okay. That's, that's the best part of the day for us. I mean, I guess there's two, there's two ways of making sure that everything's okay. There's, I guess there's the preventatives, there's the check-ins and check-ups, um, and then there's the addressing specific concerns. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what today is all about and, you know, what does it aim to achieve? What's it all about? Absolutely. So the World Side Days is a joint uh, effort between the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness. And really the idea is to encourage people simply to Love Their Eyes, which is a theme of, of uh, the day this year, and to go along and just have regular eye examinations um, as they should do every year. And the idea that they have is that people should pledge today to go along um, and have these eye checks just to make sure that everything is ticking along nicely. Mm-hmm. There are around 2 billion people who have undiagnosed eye conditions in the world, ranging from uncorrected refractive errors to cataracts to glaucoma, wow. and all of these are simply picked up if you go along and have a regular eye examination. So really the theme of the day is to raise awareness of this important issue. It's the, it's the early prevention, isn't it? It's the early detection. And, you know, for so many of us, we've all got to-do lists as, you know, as long as the Burj Khalifa. Um, but these, these kind of check-ins do tend to get put to the bottom. And unfortunately, when we do get round to it, and it could be teeth, it could be eyes today, of course, it can often be too late and can result in pain or procedures that could have been preventable had we had we got there a little bit sooner. And I'm curious then, Doctor, what are some of the main eye conditions that 
you know, today's revolved around, I'm guessing a lot of it is kind of geographical because what might be affecting developing countries might be different to, you know, first world countries. But are there any kind of conditions that are front and centre? Absolutely. So the common conditions are you could be developing cataracts. These generally tend to come on uh, later on with age, but can happen earlier in life as well. And the start of danger vision gradually, but you might not be aware of it unless somebody is able to comprehensively examine your eye and just advise you on how you can get the best out of your vision. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people simply need a pair of glasses and they're, they're kind of uh, trudging along, managing with maybe eye strain or headaches and never really understanding the source of it. And simply having an up-to-date pair of glasses can help as well. Then there can be more serious conditions such as glaucoma or conditions that affect the retina, which is the layer at the back of our eye that allows us to see. Um, and these, again, are almost silent up until it's too late. So mm-hmm. unless you're having regular examinations, by the time we do start to detect changes in our vision, it's often already too late. Dr. Sam, I'm curious if you could kind of lift a little bit on when you're saying, you know, coming in, come in for assessment and an appointment, going to somewhere that feels very specialist, because that's obviously what you are, might feel a bit intimidating, I guess. What might happen when you go in for initial checkup or a first appointment, just to make sure that everything is okay? Could you talk us through it? Absolutely. So that is a very, very understandable anxiety, of course, coming to hospital in any capacity uh, can, can make one anxious. But Um, It is all a very, very uh, friendly and very comfortable process. So um, we would start by asking our nurses to check the vision, which is just simply reading off a chart as you do at an optician's. Um, You might have a couple of more tests where you have an eye pressure test done, for example, using a very, very non-invasive method, doesn't hurt at all. Um, And then you'd go along and see the doctor. Now, in the doctor's room, in the eye specialist's room, you would have your eyes checked on what we call a slit lamp, which is just a a fancy microscope that allows us to just have a good look in the eye. And sometimes you might have these kind of dilating drops put in just to make your pupil bigger so we can examine the back of your eye, examine the retina in a bit more detail. The, the word of caution here is that if you do end up having dilating drops, sometimes you can't drive for a few hours after. You've just reminded me, I came to Moorfields about six months ago and I still need to come back because I was, I'd driven and they were like, well, you could just, if you could get a taxi, I was like, I'll, I'll call and make an appointment to come back. So oh, you, you might be seeing me soon. <laughs> anytime, anytime, absolutely. Um, but but all in all, it's a very comfortable, very seamless process. Our, you know, our team is very friendly and the, the, the setup is, is very well laid out. So it's all a very comfortable and and um, friendly process to go through. My kids loved it. They still talk about it. I think I think anything, anything where it's like, you know, it's like a test. It's a bit of fun for kids, isn't it, as well? And I think the more we get our children used to these kind of experiences, the less, you know, fear factor them or anxiety there might be around it as they get older and it just becomes part and parcel of looking after yourself. And lastly, Dr. Salmon, for everyone listening today on International World Sight Day, if we could all do something, change something, try something for the good of our eye health, what would you, what would you like to see us do? So the main thing this year, as is the theme of World Sight Day, is to love your eyes. And it's about knowing and having the awareness about what's important to look after our eyes. And if there's one message, as, as we've just discussed, that I would want to put out there, it is simply to make sure you have your eyes checked every year. Um, one of the tips I give most people in my family and also to my patients is to simply link it to your birthday. So it's something that you would never forget. Along comes your birthday and you go along for all your different health checks that you might require. 
um, to keep yourself healthy for the year ahead. Your MOT. Dr. Salmon, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Happy International Words Site to you and yours and everyone at Moorfield Eye Hospital. Dr. Salmon there speaking to us from Moorfield. Family Matters. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. October does include Inclusion Week. And just yesterday, actually, we were talking about the importance of inclusion in schools. But what about beyond that? Joining us in the studio now is Vanessa Northway, Deputy Vice Principal for Learning and Teaching at our neighbours at Heriot Watt University. And I'm, I'm wondering about what... I mean, we hear the word inclusion all the time, Vanessa. Yeah. And, it, it, and I don't want it to lose meaning, but I think it's really important to a, a, attach, you know actual meaning to it about what it can look like in a, in a place such as a university. Um, so what do you feel like that kind of role of education is when it comes to supporting students of determination and why is it a priority for you as a space? It definitely is a priority. Um, we, we make sure that every student that comes through the door has the opportunity to actually discuss their situation with us and that's that's regardless of what their issues may be. Mm-hmm. So in terms of actually being able to help support the students, we've actually seen a massive increase in students coming to us asking for help. So just before the pandemic, 19, 2019, oh. very few students, yes, a long time ago, very few students actually came to us and put their hands up to say, I, I think I'm suffering, I think I'm struggling. Um, but in our academic year 2021, we had 88 students at enrolment actually raise their hands very confidently and tell us that they, they had some issues. That's incredible. to have. Yeah. Well, first of all, to have the self-awareness to, to understand that there might be something that needs to be flagged, but also have the confidence to bring it to a situation where they're new and might be feeling a bit vulnerable and you know in front of strangers I think that's yeah it says an awful lot about the students but I think it perhaps also says an awful lot about the how much the conversations moved on in the last few years as well definitely the the, the stigma seems to have dropped um considerably I but there's so. a, there's a growing awareness here which is great and I think that you know the government's focus on that inclusion I think you know plays a, a huge role as kind of Inclusion being a guiding principle, whether that's in workplace, schools, places of higher education. And, and when we think about students of determination, there can be some very you know, practical, tangible things in place. And that might be to do with you know, f- any kind of physical differences, but also, I guess, what you know, is often termed as kind of invisible disabilities in, in other parts of the world. What are some of the issues or conditions that are, you're being made aware of and, and how are you dealing with them there? Well, a lot of the students are actually coming to us with situations and, and uh, issues with ADHD, for example, um, and they're also coming forward with dyslexia. And we're actually able to help those students in-house to be able to diagnose them or pre-diagnose oh, them. really? So they might come and say, I haven't got a diagnosis, but I'm experiencing XYZ health. Yes. And we've got teams um, available to actually speak to the students and actually help them. So we've got a big wellbeing team, we've got a student life team, we've got a student council team. Um, and it's making students aware that there is that help there and there mm-hmm. is support for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we currently have 260 students on campus who are actively getting help and support. So we've got drop-in centres um, for the students. We, we also try to include and make sure that inclusivity is part of the agenda for staff and for students. Mm-hmm. So all the conversations that we have, corridor conversations or very sort of high-level conversations with the with the learning plans for example for for students that need some help we make sure that everybody's speaking the same language Mm -hmm. Um, and like I say the stigma's gone it's it's going and I think that's that's very much more to do with UAE actually helping in terms of breaking these stigmas and boundaries but I think as a university making sure that we're actually able to have those open discussions with students and also showing that you're a a willing place to start those conversations um, 
because surely that will give someone the confidence to go into the workplace with a mindset of going, do you know what? This is what I need. This is who I am. This is how the support I need from you. And frankly, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that in any job interview, you should go with the attitude that you'd be lucky to have me. But you know, for it to be a, for it to be a two-way street of appreciation and, and you know, making sure people are supported, how, what do you think could be happening beyond university? What in terms of workplace? Because it sounds like you guys have been very, very agile, very forward-thinking. Um, but maybe corporations might need to catch up a little bit? Possibly, but we, we have um, some great contacts which have actually come forward um, during COVID, the pandemic, reaching out to us to ask if we do have students of determination who are actually looking to go into the workplace for things like internships. And I think wow. the value of students in this situation, because it shows a, a lot of self-determination and strength mm -hmm. to get through a university degree, mm -hmm. knowing that you are a student or a person of determination, because you do have extra boundaries, you do have extra things that you need to um, undertake. Um, so an example of that might be a student with dyslexia might have to have several more hours to read something and digest that information. Um, so we always make sure that um, employers are actually coming to our campus. We actually have a careers day this week um, and they're actually helping um, us to help the students. So we're looking for the key skills that the students have and what the employer needs. And we're trying to bridge that gap. So we're looking also when we undertake skill sets, um, workshops for students. So they can actually come to our careers team and they can go to one of the workshops and see what they can actually do to get into the workplace on top of their studies. Of course. You've got to get the grades yeah. as well. No, but I think that's just in, in, in all very encouraging for any parents listening today who might have children who, you know, the, the issue you've been talking about, you know, dyslexia, dysgraphia, uh, ADHD, you know, being on autism spectrum, even, you know, physical issues such as, you know, vision or hearing impairment, to know that there is actually a higher education place where they are not only going to be welcomed, but also actively encouraged into into there and beyond. And lastly, Vanessa, I'm just kind of curious, because this is something we touched on in, the, in with our school conversation yesterday, the benefits to children to be in a more inclusive environment. How do you feel that then extends to teens and those in their early 20s um, when you are surrounded by and celebrating those differences. Yeah, I, I think it's about creating that environment. We, we have to make sure we've got the zero tolerance policy for hostility and discrimination. Um, and if you look globally, I mean, our students are working across the globe. So all of our students are from a huge diversity of nationalities, over 106, seven universe, uh, 106 nationalities on campus just within the, the student population. And most of our students do go back home. They do go back overseas. They're going to be entering into a global world and the world is changing. So I think there's that embracing from the start when the students come with us all the way through their journey and making sure that industry out there is actually able to accept our students, not just our students, but any student. Um, and I think it's this whole inclusive inclusivity within the workplace that is being pushed globally that is really important so I think it's us as educators being able to reach those goals and making sure that industry can actually kind of help support those those students through. Well, it's great to have the conversation here and great to hear that's happening as you say all the way through uh, to the workplace as well. The world the world the times they are changing, changing. and I think in, in the right direction. Vanessa thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Absolute thank you. pleasure and uh, probably see you for a coffee later just yeah, around the just corner. Across the road. <laughs> Vanessa Northway Deputy Vice Principal for Learning and teaching at Harriet One or Harriet Watt University, which is right here now in Media City. Family Matters on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. I have to say, you couldn't pay me to go back and be a teenager. <laughs> it was fun, don't get me wrong, but between academic pressures and then you chuck in a bit of social media, 
my gosh, not easy and unsurprising why many teens are having a bit of a, a crisis of confidence. Um, we're joined now by Yasmin Navarro, the founder of NAVA, and she specialises in life coaching students through education and, and adults through life changes as well. So come on, Yasmin, what was, uh, what was being a teen like for you? Well, actually, I was quite an unhappy teen. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I was going through all sorts of... I think it was because mainly I, I didn't know how to deal with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Like, in my family, we didn't really talk about, you know, when we're feeling sad or unhappy. We just didn't talk about it. And everybody was always joking. But you could feel, you could sense the sadness sometimes. And so I thought it was wrong. What, to feel things? Yeah. When I was feeling sad because nobody spoke about it, I thought, mm. this must be wrong. So then you end up not liking yourself because you're, you don't like your feelings. So then you don't like yourself, actually. Mm-hmm. So I was quite unhappy in some ways. It's a, it's, it's a very tricky time because, you, as I said, you've got these academic pressures. Everyone has their own family situation, the family lens they're going through. Yeah. Check some hormones in there and... I think the last few years for teens in particular have been incredibly challenging, incredibly challenging. You know, we've had cancelled exams. We've had, you know, social structures completely, you know, taken away. We've had yeah. that. It's It's been it's been very, very difficult for this age group, I really think. And what are some of the common issues that teens are coming to you with? Well, I was just thinking about that today, actually. You know, I would say 99% of teenagers that I've coached... Um, you know, if like a lack in confidence. And I've just realised that they all have the same thing in common. They're just being extremely unkind to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're always taught to be kind to other people, put other people first. But actually, I think we need to be taught more about just being kind to ourselves and looking mm-hmm. after ourselves. And it's all the same. I was thinking about it today. I was like, they're all being unkind to themselves. So how can you feel happy and confident if you're putting yourself down all the time? And so much of this comes down to, I mean, I remember when I was, was growing up thinking about, you know, models. And I still, you know, to this to this day now, think of like these kind of smooth skin size eight blonde <laughs> models that were on the front of Just 17 magazine, right? You know, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was the beauty standard. But I only had the occasional magazine. I had my classmates to compare myself to physically and obviously academically. But yeah. I didn't have social media. I didn't have as much, you know, TV and, and film. And now you've got the, these constant comparisons, both in real life and online. So it's no wonder that, you know, if, you, if you're not given the proper education about a lot of this is rubbish, a lot of that is filters, a lot of that is someone putting their best face forward on social media and not telling you the real story. Of course, you're going to compare yourself unfavorably. Of course, you're going to be, you yeah. know, having lots of negative self-talk. So what Definitely. can we do as parents to offset so much of this barrage of information and negativity i think it's like the simple things always the most powerful i think you know having a conversation with your teenager just open having open discussions like being able to talk let, allow your teenager to talk about absolutely anything ask them questions you know how are you feeling when you open social media or how are you feeling today like let them just say whatever they need to say because mm-hmm. i think if, as long as they've got someone to talk to and they don't bottle everything up because I think that's when it becomes quite dangerous when they're not sharing how they're feeling mm-hmm. because then they're going to feel alone, isolated, and then that could lead to 
more serious problems. Um, a message here and, and no name on it and absolutely fine if you want to contact the show and leave your name off on 4001 that's fine saying my teen daughter is one of the last few still wearing a mask at her <sighs> school it isn't due to anxiety around COVID because she's had it twice and is vaccinated but I think she's using it to hide herself from school friends and teachers um, in a similar way to wearing baggy hoodies etc she's very reluctant to discuss it and I don't know how to best deal with it um, how can I help build her confidence to show her face again oh, well that's, that's really sad and actually I was coaching a teenager the other week and, and she said she was really happy because I always say like what was your highlight this week and your low light and her highlight was that she took off her mask and she felt okay because she was dreading the day of taking off her mask because she said it's a thing that uh, people laugh at you when you take your mask off because they say oh you look better with your mask on mm, so you have this funny. fear <laughs> yeah teen's brutal I know so that was the highlight of her week taking off her mask and it was and okay and she got through it. it so it's so understandable when you think about that you know if you're you if you've been used to it's a barrier it's a barrier exactly oh that's a hard one um i would say i mean she doesn't wear the mask at home no just says it's at school just at school has she got a friend like who she can like sit next to and talk to and take the mask off in, yeah, in front and, with her friend and, there and build it up from yeah there. so she's not on her own mm. My heart bleeds. It really does. I just want to like step through the screen and give that girl a big hug because That's we've all been those those insecure. We have, we have. Whether admit it or not, we've all been that insecure person. Oh, definitely. Maybe as well. Like it could be good to ask her. You know, what are you feeling and thinking when you remove that mask, or what are you like really afraid of? I think yeah, if she can imagine that and then question that as well, mm-hmm. so she can. F- so she knows she's going to have that fear, but she's prepared for it, if that think, makes sense. I think that kind of what if, you know, you know, what, what, what if you do? And what if they think yes, that? And yes, what, yes, yes. And, what, and, and, and so, so what if they do that? What's the worst that what's can happen? What's the worst that can happen? And you what's know, the best? And I say that as an adult who often does that. <laughs> try, try and help <laughs> with different situations. Um, one thing I think is really, really hard is that comparison piece. And I think the grades, the academics, especially in some very competitive schools, can be very, very difficult. Um, but I keep on I keep on seeing this quote, which is, you know, practice makes, and it's not, it doesn't make perfect, you know, practice makes progress. But when you are having kids held up to a high academic study where you're getting, you know, winners and losers an awful lot of the time, um, how can we boost confidence outside of school, which then hopefully would impact more confidence in school? Well, I think definitely it's about encouraging um, students and everyone in general to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, celebrate your mistakes. When you're making mistakes, it means you're trying something new. So celebrate the mistakes. It's all part of the journey of being successful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you don't make mistakes and you're not learning, like there's always something to be gained. So I think failure like what is failure I mean I don't really even like that word actually yeah it's interesting one of my favorite podcasts is called how to fail have you ever listened to it no I haven't it's brilliant it's by a a journalist writer called Elizabeth Day and each week she gets a person of note and it could be you know a writer politician a celebrity actor you know what whoever yeah some fascinating people and often the best ones that are the ones I've enjoyed the most the people that I actually have never heard of but and, and they she asked them to email in their top three failures and some of them are quite surface you know failing my driving test or you know failing to get into university some are deeply deeply emotional and actually what happens even the superficial ones once you 
when she kind of scratches beneath the surface. I actually think it would be a really good podcast for a lot of teens to listen to because you get these people and you think you would never expect this pop star to be crying about failures because what they have learned is ultimately your failures get you to where you are in life. You know, that thing wasn't meant for you or it taught you something that led on to something that was so much more meaningful and wonderful. Exactly, and it gives us resilience. Yeah, and even if it's horrible and rubbish, then you get through it and you're so much stronger than you realise. Can I ask you about what coaching actually might look like for a teen? If a parent's listening today and saying, you know what, I want to help my teen, but maybe I'm not the person. Maybe they don't want to talk to me. And that's that's okay, but I want them to have someone that they can, you know, offload to or share their ambitions with or have someone to kind of, as a bit of a sounding board. Can you kind of demystify the coaching process for us, especially when it comes to teens, Jasmine? Yeah, so for me, I guess every coach is probably different. But for me, the number one thing is, you know, I would never never force a teenager to say or open up if they don't want to. You know, it's all about them um, leading the session in their own time. And I'm just there to guide them and ask them questions, powerful questions, you know, get to know them, build a rapport with them so they can trust me. Have fun. Like we have fun in the sessions. You know, it's fun. Like um, and let them use their creativity to increase their confidence, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I'm asking them questions. They're finding the answers. It's not me saying, I think you should do this. This might help you. Exactly. It's, it's, not, not, that. it's, it's not about, it's definitely not about not. fixing. It's about definitely, yes. guiding. Definitely, definitely. They're leading it. And, and it's funny because when they do find the answers, you know, and then that sparks another idea for them. And then they go off and doing their own thing mm-hmm. during the week. And then they come back and they say, oh, I've created a journal or I've made a cake that represents happiness for me or something it's all their ideas it's not coming from me and I'm just like wow and of course it makes me feel good as well of course <laughs> thank you so much I think I think yeah as I said I wouldn't want to go back myself so to any teens listening today I think you're amazing and to any parents same to you <laughs> for anyone that just want to get in touch with you what's the best way of reaching out best way I guess is withnava.com my website or withnava on my Instagram. There you go. If you want that, by all means, drop me the line on 4001 and I will connect you. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.